welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hello, welcome back to Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's podcast series. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, the occasional host that takes over for Zach Shahan sometimes when I have somebody interesting to talk to. And I have somebody very interesting to speak with today, Dr. Jane Melia, the co-founder and CEO of Harvest Thermal, an interesting heat pump manufacturing deployment firm. Welcome, Jane. Hi, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So I always like to start, who the heck are we speaking to? We've got a big audience, so tell us about yourself. I mean, you've had an interesting and varied path to reach this point, and it includes quantum cybersecurity. So there's uh, there's a story there, and and as our listeners will tell, you've got an accent that doesn't indicate you originated in the San Francisco Bay Area. So so what's the story of Jane Melia that led to Harvest Thermal? Okay, so I am... Originally British, uh, but I now have three passports, British, French, and American. And I've been living in the Bay Area since 2004. But I, I did start off life in the UK, uh, grew up in France, and then ended uh, ended in the Bay Area where uh, my three children were raised. And so uh, very, very well established here. So who am I? I'm a civil engineer with a passion for clean tech. I have a graduate degree in fluid mechanics. And I worked for a while in engineering, including on, say, analyses of, of wind turbines in my early career. But I moved over quite quickly to the uh, to the business side of things, strategic planning, corporate strategy, supply chain, and others in big, big corporation. But pretty quickly, I jumped ship and joined the startup world. That was in 2008, where I joined a solar concentrator company called Sol Focus. They had concentrator PV, which was focusing the light onto a very small fraction of, of high performance uh, cells. And I spent, I think, four or five years there. And it was a fantastic journey. That company rose from zero to 1.5 million units per year at high levels of performance and quality. And it was a really exciting ride. After Sol Focus, I joined Enervolt, a storage company. And uh, also spent a number of years at Quintessence Labs, which is a quantum cybersecurity company that you mentioned. So I'm really passionate about developing and bringing impactful innovation to market. And you can, you can see that in, in what I've been doing over the, over the past few years. I founded Harvest Thermal in 2019, but we actually started working on it in, in 2017. And that's the real founder's journey of coming out with the the problem for my own home, for my own situation, thinking, I don't find a good solution out here. There has to be a better way to do it. And so we we pulled it together. I've had a system, a hub system in my home since 2018. Results were really strong. So we founded the company in 2019. And then, you know, the rest is history, but we're we're growing. We're deploying uh, systems in homes and really looking to have the biggest impact possible on carbon emissions from our homes and buildings. A fascinating journey. We'll get to Harvest Thermal in a bit um, mm-hmm. and Block Power, but I'm just going to poke at a couple of bits here past because I'm curious and nerdy. So a PhD in fluid dynamics, was it? Fluid mechanics, yes. 
fluid mechanics. And so then moving into uh, the wind turbine space, that implies that you did some significantly advanced computational fluid dynamics analysis and some really interesting stuff there to improve the flow of uh, laminar flow and other things across and through across and through stuff. It, yes. it just yeah, my, my, my PhD was all about the, the flow of fluids, flow of dense fluids through arrays of, of, of obstacles. So it was uh, computational fluid dynamics. It was also experimental as well. Had a lot of fun, both modeling it, but also wading in a large tank full of fluids and, and modeling it out. So uh, it was uh, both very hands-on, which I am. I'm a civil engineer at heart, but also a lot, a lot of modeling and, and analysis going on. In the uh, in the wind turbine space, I was a consultant engineer for a um, consultancy in science and technology. Wind turbines was one of many projects I did. I also mm-hmm. did um, pollutants through tunnels, uh, mm-hmm. fires in atria, uh, and, and wind turbines was the one I've been, you know, I've been interested in clean energy forever. My my parents were even passionate about clean energy and solar before it was fashionable to be so. So we would ha- always had a, a few experiments going on in my household and uh, clean energy is always stuck. Yeah, I, I have to admit that um, I, I'm engaged as an advisor with uh, a, a redox flow battery technology company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I assume you're familiar with redox flow battery yeah. as an yes. approach. And so one of the the risk points I still consider is that there is a large tanks of fluids and gases in this case that flow through increasingly small diameter tubes into relatively small cells and then flow at the other side and aggregate into large tanks again. And I consider the degrees of fractionating, the wrong word, but splitting the uh, flows of fluids into smaller and smaller things and then aggregating them back. And my biggest, one of my biggest risk points is just the sheer mechanical fluid dynamics of that and the implications for throughput of the redox flow technology batteries. We've got, okay. Yeah, or the risk associated with it. Now, when I was in my the battery company, I was definitely on the business side. I was doing the analysis and the comparison to coal and, and the emissions and so on. I know they did a lot of reliability work, a lot of due diligence and deployed very successfully in, in the field. Some of the challenges were the very large scale that these flow batteries had to have, which is very hard compared to the compact nature of lithium ion ion batteries. I think there are lots of different solutions required for different segments though. And I think Mm -hmm. the non-toxicity of the type of flow batteries that that we were working on gives it an important important role, right? You certainly won't won't work with your vehicle, won't work for your your phone, but it has a place for the larger scale needs. So you actually worked on redux flow battery technologies as well. Where where was that? Uh, I worked at Enervolt. So that was a flow oh, battery. Enervolt was flow batteries. Enervolt well. was a flow battery. Ah. Yes. So they so what they chemistry are, was it? It was chrome I no it's I sorry I, I can't remember the exact chemistry. Sorry about that. Uh, t- but it was uh, iron yeah. and something else and I can I can get back to okay. you on that. Yeah, the ferrous redox flow uh, reaction is one of the standard ones that um, is being used. Form, I think, is pivoted to that right now as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it's an interesting thing because um, I, I first re- bumped up because I'm not a fluid dynamics expert by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I even pretend to be one on the internet. But I, I certainly have had bumped up against it in wind energy uh, when I looked at one of the many failed attempts to compress flu- uh, compress air into a smaller area to use the venturi effect to drive a smaller turbine at higher speeds with greater airflow and so i'm kind of looking at some of the papers and the computational fluid design assessments of those technologies and 
they nicely contained it to the small space without looking at the rest of it. And as a result, they overstated what was possible with that technology. It's fascinating to look at. And I, I've maintained a significant respect for the fluid dynamics of laminar flow and non-laminar flow and vortices in wind turbines and eddy impacts on downstream turbines, on boundary layer mixing, and, and certainly in aviation, now another space I'm in right now. So it's just a fascinating space to think about how these things work out and talk to people who are experts on them. It, it is, and it's a highly complex space. The work I did, the, the PhD work I did was really coming on from the Bhopal incident, which took place in the late 80s yes. in India. And there was a, a very tragic incident where a, a large number of people died as a result of a, a release of a, a dense toxic gas from a, a chemical plant. And, you know, at the right. time, the way that, that, that this was modeled is you, you would have, you know, you would model it using a source of that dense fluid over a flat area, either experimentally or, or modeling. And they could Get, I mean, it's hard to model actually, but they could get a feel for how that would mix over time and, and what the, 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 the different concentrations of that fluid would be at various distances from, from the, the core. And the assumption was, well, if there are obstacles in the way, it's going to mix, therefore it's going to be less impactful. It's going to be less dangerous. There'll be more mixing, mm. more dilution. It's going to be less impactful. But the death toll in Bhopal you know, contradicted that. And that's where there was a flurry of, of research into, you know what, we we do not have a handle on this. We don't know what's happening here. And so there's a flurry of, of research, including my PhD and, and others, really understanding that and, and measuring and modeling, well, what, what does happen behind a building? And what you find is, mm -hmm. as well as concentration, you also, as well as dilution, you also get concentration behind buildings. Mm -hmm. You get spaces where that, that, that fluid remains relatively unmixed and so a relatively high concentration so you cannot count on it necessarily being more benign than that open area and so that's really yeah. a lot of what we were doing that is uh, yeah I, I had not considered it in that regard because i obviously i'm familiar with the bhopal incident as normal people who were alive during that period are but mm -hmm. i never looked at it in detail and i hadn't realized i hadn't thought through that i mean obviously uh, a dense a dense gas in our atmosphere will pool. It yeah. will have vortices behind things. And as I think through it, you're right. Behind buildings, there will be wind shadows. and There'll, be, there'll also be eddies change the transformational stuff. Yeah, that would be... So, I'm visualizing it in my mind. And yes, it's, it's very it different than what people expected. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily as beneficial as we thought to have those obstacles in the way. And so we under underestimated the, the danger. And, and really because it's just a very complex problem to model. It really, really is. And so flat ground is yeah. hard enough. And so a lot of work has been done experimentally and modeling since then. And I, I and then I don't know what's happened from a, a codes and standards perspective, but I certainly hope that that has now been integrated into how we locate our, our chemical plants and, and industries. One would certainly hope. we don't want but that certain... to happen ever again, so. No. But but it's also I'm thinking through urban design and the venturi effect and you know in wind tunnels in major areas without with buildings without podiums and setbacks. Like I live in Vancouver and you live in San Francisco. I have been to San Francisco for 20 years, I think, or 15 years. But in Vancouver, all the buildings are designed with short podiums, a bit set back from the sidewalk, and then a more vertical thing, in part to prevent some of that funneling of uh, wind 
and to enable certain classes of things. Yes. But uh, I, you're right. Intuitively, I would have assumed greater mixing yeah. and greater, hence greater diffusion with obstacles like buildings and the airflow, but that's obviously not what happened from the way you were doing research. For the most part, it's true. And, and you know, you, you would have been, you know, mo most scientists, that's kind of what the, the prevailing wisdom was. It's just that Bhopal proved that actually maybe not always and not always to extent wow. it could be really harmful. So. Uh, uh, cer certainly, um, you know, we, we have a kind of a weird intersection in wind turbines. One of the things I spent a lot of time on was understanding propagation of noise. Mm -hmm. And it's also nonlinear. It's, you know, uh, there's a, a simplified model of a, you know, cubic expansion of a volumetric space and hence a, a nonlinear dif uh, diffusion of sound. But there's concentrations, there's the downwind versus upwind. There are certain classes of things, infrasound or lower frequency sounds propagate a lot further high frequency sounds propagate a lot less and annoyance is complete from you know the actual ability to hear something there's stuff that and there's stuff that just grabs our attention anything in the human speech range around 2500 hertz we just sit up and take notice because we assume someone's talking to us yeah but that's different than the other stuff yeah the i hadn't considered the nonlinearity of mixing i i've typically been looking at, at applications for fluid design where it's important to design for smooth laminar flow through a system or over a wing, but I haven't considered the nonlinear propagation yeah. or concentration areas. In this oh. case, you want it mixed. You want it mixing and dilating yeah. as quickly as you can. So, yes. Yeah. No, I, spent a, I spent a fair amount of time looking at aerodynamics in ground transportation stuff. Today mm -hmm. I was looking at a, a container ship with a wind baffle to yes. draw the air smoothly around the outside of the container ship. Part of one of the things I've done is a projection through 2100 of uh, marine fuel, marine tonnage and across multiple domains and then hence fuel demands. And then, of course, obviously, the refueling of those techno uh, of those transportation modes with low carbon fuels. And so that's an interesting one. I've missed the potential for aerodynamic application to container ships. I, I basically think we should, they should just go slower because that would add but that, but supply chain, supply chain lead times. Yeah. I know it's in, it's really fascinating to watch the the freight, the the bulk freight tonnage, coal, oil, and natural gas, which typically have uh, because they're bulk and they're low value per unit mm -hmm. uh, comparatively, they run really slowly, like nine, ten knots. But container ships run over twenty knots because we want our Game Boys and our They iPod, have customers iPods. who are willing to pay more to get it across. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but so civil engineering, fluid dynamics, which was a, you know, it's, it's a really interesting deep step up. And, and, you know, there's a story there, I'm sure. But I'm curious about how you ended up in quantum cyber cybersecurity, because <laughs> that's a, that's a divergent yeah. topic yet again. Well, well, you know, when I worked at, at Soul Focus, I worked at Soul Focus for, for a number of years, and the CEO of that company was a gentleman called Mark Mark Crowley. Uh, and then I went okay. and moved and started working at Enervolts. And then one day I got a, a call from Mark saying, I've just joined a quantum cybersecurity company. Okay. And uh, I was uh, actually happened to have been given a book called The Code Book by Simon Singh. I don't know if you've seen uh, read that one. Don't know. A uh, very good book, strongly recommended. In it, there was a chapter on quantum cybersecurity, which I okay. did not know anything about. And I was just reading it, and Mark Crowley says, I'm working in quantum cybersecurity. 
you know, is this something you'd be interested in applying for? And I'm like, well, really, I think this is meant to be. <laughs> and so I, I, I joined Mark and the team in uh, this quantum cybersecurity company. It was an Australian-led uh, company uh, based out of Canberra uh, by Dr. Vikram Sharma. Uh, and it's okay. still going strong. The only reason I left was because I had this harvest thermal concept and idea, and I just had to run with it. Uh, quantum cybersecurity is also a very important and, and very interesting uh, area to work in. It is fascinating. I, I so I, I because of part of my background is I did complex, large scale technology deployments and transformational programs with uh, one of the one of the world's largest technology companies. I had roles in North America, Asia, and Latin America. And so as we were solutioning and architecting these things, I, you know, as I acted in part as a systems engineer to pull all the components together. I was constantly dealing with security and cybersecurity as a domain of necessary importance to understand the risks associated with that. And so I kind of backed into quantum cybersecurity simply to say, okay, how real is quantum computing cracking of high complexity, uh, you know, PGP and other in, uh, in coding yeah. stuff right now. How much is it? You know, and the firm I was with had lots and lots of research going on there. And so I was, I was comforted at the time that at least for the timeframes I was concerned with, I didn't need to worry about it because, you know, 1024 byte keys were still secure enough for, a, but until that magic qubit threshold passes, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of inf our secure infrastructure becomes insecure. Yeah. So what, what's some, I, 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 let's just intersect that with clean, clean tech, if you, if you have an insight there, because it would be curious. What, what do you think the biggest risk from quantum computing on security of clean technology might be, if you had to make a hypothesis? And I might be putting you on the spot, so my apologies. So, I mean, the, the threat from quantum computers, as you mentioned, is the, the breach of, of, our, of typically the asymmetric encryption, which protects most of our, most of our transactions, right? And, and, yeah. uh, and the, you know, a, symmetric encryption is somewhat stronger, and we have the ability to, to lengthen those keys, but asymmetric encryption is what is really the most vulnerable to a hypothetical, really strong quantum computer that will be able to break them. As an aside, one of the challenges with quantum computing is that we it will take a lead a significant lead time to retrofit infrastructure and codes and keys that that is encountered in years, not months. And so that you're always having to plan ahead for that hypothetical quantum computer, and you have to make your best guess when that that's going to be. And I, you know, just from my time, and I will get to your question in a second, but just from my time in in, in that 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 company, you know, and, and meeting to to really smart people working in the space who are trying to estimate, well, what is that lead time? And, and people saying, you know, there's maybe a thirty percent chance that that you know quantum computer that's able to break, you know, the, the current version of AES will happen within, I I think it's something like five to seven years. And, you know, a 30% chance is not a huge chance, but it's a big chance if it's going to mean you lose all your, your data and your security. So it, it certainly is a, is a risk. And I, I haven't revisited that number for the past, you know, couple of years, but it's something that is, you know, um, really important. And you're talking about the intersection of the two. When when we, we looked at the um, World Economic Forum 
looking at the, the top risks, um, the reason I looked at that was Quintessence Labs was a World Economic Forum innovator. Uh, so it was nominated by the World Economic Forum as one of the, the top innovators. So it was, uh, you know, very, very important and really, very well recognized in that way. But looking at the, the World Economic Forum list, list of risks, uh, the top risks, uh, this was just a couple of years back, it was climate change, climate change, security, security. I mean, various variants on climate change and security are the global risks that we we are grappling with as as humanity and that we need to be tackling both of them now the cross section between the two this is just me hype um, you know i haven't ever crossed them but you know i guess it would mean you know control of one's infrastructure control of one's power lines if you one's power plants of and, and a slightly different segment of one's water water system right if you know if you lose the ability to protect this really important infrastructure then you become vulnerable to threats ransomware all kinds of things because you 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 are dependent on the goodwill of another party to let you keep working so yeah. very vulnerable so yeah well it's interesting because I, i've been looking at security threats associated with our energy infrastructure for quite a while you know simply because i'm nerdy and i know the energy infrastructure and I know a bit about security. And so I'm looking for these things. And I always think, and I have a military background long, long time ago. So I always think about the overlapping layers of the physical and virtual defense structures. Mm -hmm. And so my, you know, one of my favorite stories with the is the people who hacked an entire wind farm with a Raspberry Pi device, a tiny little thing, by picking the lock on a wind turbine and installing the Raspberry Pi device in a single wind turbine, and then took over significant amount of pitch and yaw control for an entire wind farm. Now, thankfully, they did this with um, as a research effort with the approval of the wind farm uh, operators, and then reported on their stuff so that it could be fixed. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting intersection of a trivial non-quantum hack with Raspberry Pi and a physical hack, which is getting access to the infrastructure. Um, but I also look at um, uh, well, well, this is not at all the topic of the su- subject, but I'm just curious because I'm, it's an interesting topic. I, I also look at the uh, recent experiences in um, Ukraine, where there's been significant imp- implications for energy infrastructure and, sadly, global warming. But they've been actually dropping, the Russians have actually dropped missiles on solar farms. Mm-hmm. And there's like this 30-foot crater in the middle of a solar farm. The rest of the solar farm is fine around it, and it's operational two days later because they just wire around the hole, right? There's it's a significant fantastic. amount of resilience. I know. It's wonderful. Significant <laughs> amount of- but at the same time, we look at these transmission wires, which are single points of failure. There's two data points on that one just to mull around as you think about this and have cocktail conversation with apocalyptic people, as, as one does in uh, San Francisco, it assumes. The first was the Hunterston nuclear power plant failure in 2014. I doubt you're familiar with it because it's kind of a weird energy nerd thing. There's a small wind farm of 13 wind farms and significant gale force winds came through and one wind turbine was damaged by this and became a poster child for anti-renewables advocates globally because it spun around on its axis and then it yawed around and then it spun out of control and I caught fire and it burned. Oof, um, great video footage oh, there. <laughs> if you're, against, video if you're footage. against renewable energy, it's great. I know. So one out of 13. Yeah. Now, next door, the Hunterston nuclear facility, a gigawatt scale nuclear power facility, 
the transmission lines from it got blown down by the same storm, mm -hmm. leading to, for 54 hours, the entire gigawatt per hour of electricity from that um, nuclear facility was offline, leaving tens or hundreds of thousands of Scottish people freezing in the dark in the howling winds. But yet the entire global as uh, infrastructure aspect or the global the global story was about the wind turbine that failed. And by the way, the wind farm, the rest of the wind farm was up and operating two days later. So it's just like, yeah, it was I, a fascinating divergence I mean, there, in security perspectives. Yeah, I mean, th there is, you know, a, a targeting, you know, people who have concerns about certain technology, particularly renewables or electrification or just change. They they will look for those, those unfortunate incidents and put magnifying glass on them. And then you, if you look at if you back back and look at the forest, you think, well, actually, that was pretty pretty good performance, relatively speaking, and had a lot of value. Uh, thinking back to some of the storms that took place in in, in Texas, and obviously there were a lot mm -hmm. of challenges on on the electric grid, but you know a, a lot of there was some conversation about that being partly due to renewables where was actually that the, the gas plants were really struggling and, and that resulted in a lot more loss of, of electricity than the, the renewable side of the, the equation. More than that. I mean, so A, the Texas grid is, and the Texas energy system is based on just-in-time delivery. Mm -hmm. They've removed capacity markets, so they have, don't have a structural system for securing a resilient grid. They just assume that the market will take care of it. And then it's separated from, so it doesn't have uh, grid connections. But it's not only the gas generation, the gas generation plants weren't winterized, but the fuel lines that were leading back to the just-in-time delivery actually had points of lower points where vapor in the gas dripped out and froze, freezing the gas lines, mm -hmm. so interrupting the supply. Coal, coal piles at coal plants got wet and then froze, so they couldn't, be har they, they couldn't get the coal out to put in the burner. And a, a set of sensors and stuff at a nuclear plant also froze, knocking the entire nuclear plant offline. And the wind turbines actually generated more electricity during that period than they'd actually been budgeted for. Yeah. So it was fascinating to watch that. Uh, but from the security section, I think the last point I'll make about security before we move mm -hmm. on to harvest thermal and stuff and heat pumps was, I remember that, uh, what, five years ago, six years ago, in the American Southwest, a whole bunch of specific power lines were shut down by people with high-powered rifles shooting the insulators on the lines. At the time, it was many people, and myself included, said, hmm, that strikes me as a physical infrastructure dry run. If you know where the connectors are, if you know how the power grid works, is it easier to launch a cybersecurity attack, or is it easier just to take some of the many rifles with steel jacketed rounds and shoot out key components with a team of 20 who travel through a region and knock out the entire grid in that region? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think the reality is that there are so many vulnerabilities, right? We can try and shore up one area and another area is going to be shored up. I mean, I, I remember the day when we used to go onto planes without security checks. I mean, that seems like ages ago, but we'd go on buses and other things without security checks and, 
you know, we're just having to keep sure up to keep keep ahead of the keep ahead of the challenges. And I guess it means that we need that we need to build in that resiliency and and avoid yes. the single point of failure, or at least minimize the downtime and the impact when these failures arrive. Right. So it's having the plan B, the plan C, and the backup as much as possible. So and avoiding making the problem worse. For example, increasing global warming and climate change. And so we pivot heat pumps. Very because nice I'm not sure we've actually said the syllables heat pumps yet, but no, we harvest thermal is in the space of heat pumps. So let's talk about, so I, I could talk about heat pumps for a long time and I've written a lot about it, but Jane, you're the guest. So how would you define a heat pump? I would say heat pumps are the heroes of building decarbonization. They are fantastic machines. I don't know how we change the name. It should be something really exciting and sexy, but heat pumps is what it is. If you're able to change that with your platform, Michael, that would be a fantastic thing, but be it as it may. So heat pumps, what they're doing is they are moving energy rather than generating it. They are extracting warmth from the air using a compression cycle, bringing it into a fluid, a refrigerant, and then releasing it in the home, often through a a fan coil, right, to, to, to blow warm air, air over it and just transfer that heat into the home. The beautiful thing about this is that they can move more heat energy than the electric energy that they use to move it, which means that they have this wonderful thing called a coefficient of performance, which you can shorthand as like an efficiency, which is greater than one. And, you know, um, I, I got, you know, Combustion cannot be more than 100% efficient, and that that is a, a, a law of nature, right? I mean, that that is that is a reality. But this is not we're not breaking the law of nature. We're just moving heat rather than generating it. That allows you to deliver more heat to the home than you're using in terms of electric energy. So, you know, uh, heat pump efficiencies are two uh, coefficients of performance. Sorry, of two, three, four, or even five are very, you know, very available and accessible and commercially available on the market. So a gas furnace will never exceed 100%, but typically even the best ones might be 95% at peak performance. The older ones might be 60%. Yeah. Jane, Jane, I'm just going to say use the same units because you say COP of one, two, or two, three, four, five, but then you say 100% for gas furnaces. So 0.9, you know, one or 0.95, that's the that's the magic here. It's like you get multiples of units of heat. And would people actually experience this? What what things do they have in there? If they have a gas furnace and they have, for example, an air conditioner and a refrigerator and a stove, where would they see the same kind of technology in their homes today? So, I mean, a heat pump is using the same technology in reverse as a refrigerator. It's using the same technology as that air conditioning unit. It's essentially that refrigeration cycle where you are using a compression cycle to, uh, so I'm not going to be explaining it very well. I'm sure you could do way better than me, but essentially, you know, uh, drawing that heat into into the refrigerant compressing it and transferring it to the home. That's a very, very bad explanation. I should get my engineers on this. So, but essentially Uh, it is like, it's like working that it's like your refrigerator working in, in in reverse, right? Your refrigerator is extracting heat from that, that box refrigerator and releasing it into the air. What the uh, heat pump is doing is taking heat from the outdoor air and uh, bringing it into that fluid, that refrigerant and releasing it into the home. The nice thing about it, the 
the the the, the mind blowing thing about it, just as that ref, that refrigerator is extracting heat from the inside of your refrigerator, even though it's cold, and bring it to the outdoor air, that heat pump can, is taking heat from air, even when that air feels cold to human being, there is heat in that air, and it's able to take heat out of that air and bring it into the home. Now, the efficiency of a heat pump is better when it's warmer, right? So it's, you know, it's going to be more efficient, say, in the middle of the day, which is when harvest system, thermal systems operate, but you can extract heat from even cold air, you know, the heat pump that we use, that which is a sand and heat pump, uh, has the same power output, capacity output, down to four degrees Fahrenheit, albeit it's at lesser efficiency than it would be, say, at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, let's take that a, a little further, because we talked about coefficient of performance. And I don't know if people are intentionally making this harder to understand, but there's COPS and there's SPF, and now there's HSPF as well. Oh my goodness. The average person is sitting here, they've barely got to coefficient of performance if they've got there at all, whatever the heck that is. You know, they don't think in those terms. Right. But then there's coefficient of performance seasonal, and then there's seasonal performance factors, and then there's heat seasonal performance factors. Can you explain the difference? And I'll, if you can't, yeah. any of those that you have stumbled across painfully, I'll make my best stab at, but I'm okay. sure you have better definitions of them than I do. So, so the COP, that coefficient of performance, is going to be the, the rated spec at a, at a specific condition, right? This heat pump under this temperature conditions can deliver this amount of heat into the home. That is the COP. Mm-hmm. You, you're talking about COPS. I call it SCOP, seasonal coefficient of performance. I think we're talking about the same thing. And what yeah. that is, is over a period of time, typically a year, when temperatures outdoors are fluctuating, what what will the actual output of that heat pump uh, heat pump be? Uh, and it's going to be less than that peak performance, right? Because it won't always be in optimal conditions. But it's going to give you a much better feel for what it would how it would perform in a often in laboratory conditions, but laboratory conditions that are meant to mimic a, a, a yeah, at least to some extent the the, the heating and, and cooling you know the different weather conditions in the field. Uh, what we do at Harvest is we're just measuring field COP, right? And we're, we're, we're just measuring, well, what does it actually do over a year of operation in the field? And, you know, we're getting heat pump field performance of about four. It's not our heat pump. We're using a third-party heat pump. Yep. But we are able to... Because op- it's very interesting. Yeah. But we're able to operate it to its optimum. So that's how we help it, you know, perform to its optimum. But our system-level COP, because Harvest takes that heat pump and then we've got circulated pump and we've got you know, flow meter and other things. And of course, there's thermal losses around, but our, our seasonally just seasonally measured, sorry, our field measured COP is about three. So 300%, okay. uh, which uh, we're very clear, proud of. Yeah. To compare and contrast, you know, you might think of a capacity factor for a wind or solar farm, mm-hmm. you know, so a wind farm, the median is about, you know, it, you know, the capacity factor might be 42% of the nameplate capacity. And so COP might be considered the nameplate capacity of the heat pump. You know, it's like it's a 12 megawatt wind turbine, offshore wind turbine that operates at 60% capacity factors. So the seasonal, your your language, seasonal coefficient of performance or field tested COP, I think is the language you use, would be lower 
than the nameplate capacity of a wind farm or a solar farm. In a similar way, there's differences as you move through the year. And uh, to disambiguate one thing you said, just to clarify for people, A, heat pumps work better when the temperature variance with the heat source is lower. So if there's a 20 degree Fahrenheit variance with outdoor air, it's going to work more efficiently than if there's a 60 degree Fahrenheit variance with outsource air, out, out, you know, outside outdoor air. air. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the thing that Jane mentioned in passing. But modern heat pumps work really well with very significant uh, heat variances today. And Jane's point is that annualization of the energy transfer change means that you end up with this much you, you can hear about the worst cases of the minus 40 days and, you know, having to have some induction heat then. But the rest of the year, it doesn't really matter. It works just fine. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, the thing about extreme temperatures is that they're typically quite peaky, the way I call it. So, you know, the, 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 the peak load on a house will happen for a few hours of a day, a few days of the year. And so, uh, you know, even in extreme climates, you might, you know, that that heat pump might struggle at those, at those temperatures. And then it's, you know, uh, how else can you, uh, how else can you address that? But for 99% of the time or 95%, depending on the situation, that heat pump's going to do just fine and it's going to deliver all, all that load. And in many climates, you don't need a boost. It's all a question of sizing your system and understanding the, the needs, the load needs, the energy needs of your, of your home. Yeah, I, I, I will say that I, I think the heat pump industry, well, to your point, it'd be nice if it had a better name, but it doesn't. So mm -hmm. kind of live with that. Like natural gas, they really scored in the branding of that. <laughs> Fossil gas <laughs> or methane gas. Well, yes. Yes. But heat pumps, the other thing is the, so right now then I'm hearing there's coefficient of performance. There's uh, your seasonal coefficient of performance or field tested coefficient of performance in Europe, they have COPS, which is the tested in multiple areas. So that it's laboratory tested at a single temperature is COP. Laboratory tested at multiple temperatures is an assessment of COP seasonal. But then actually the field tested is seasonal performance factor. Okay. And then in the United States, they have something called the heating seasonal performance factor, which doesn't align with any of these. It's the BTUs divided by the kilowatts, kilowatt hours. And it's like HSPF is completely divergent because it isn't units of heat comparison. It's BTUs to kilowatt hours comparison. Yeah. And, and so you end up with these factors of 13 or 15 and go, uh, and Energy Star runs on that. So you have to have, I think, an 8.5 HSPF in order to get an Energy Star rating, which has nothing to do with COP yeah. or SPF in the other terminology. So we have this significant divergence right now in how efficiency is assessed and reported on in the heat pump space, which I think probably somebody, not me, but needs to get on. Yeah. Um, and you know, just confusing. Yeah. It's, you know, as heat pumps grow, right, this is something which is not yet very common, but is getting increasingly so. And they've got such, as I said, they, these are the heroes of, of home decarbonization. They have a lot of assets, you know, a lot of advantages around that. Uh, I, I hope that uh, that people are working on that and will make it easier for, for us to understand. The most important thing is to be able to understand how does a particular system actually perform and operate so that you can 
compare them and you can choose the right ones for your for your situation or your your you know your your builder can choose the right ones for, for your um, your uh, your situation but i think most importantly whatever the units the key thing is how do they perform from an energy perspective how do they perform from a cost perspective how do they perform from an emissions perspective and how do they perform from a comfort perspective and heat pumps are really good at many at many of those and so whatever the unit they you know hopefully that will clear up i think cops is already a good start but the key thing that we're focused on at harvest is you know getting gas out of homes and how do you do that mm -hmm. without impacting comfort it's got to be cost effective otherwise it just ain't going to happen and how do we do that without you know having that that fratricidal battle with the electric grid you know and and the electrification of homes how do we make it work for both sides because both sides have to get cleaner and it can't be one at the expense of the other well i'm going to start with one thing there so you've got a really interesting thing you've got a standard heat pump so the way i'll describe it is you've got some standard components and you've got a secret sauce component is the way i look at your system as an engineer we'll get to your secret sauce component but i'll say the the standard components are a heat pump that's an off-the-shelf sandine uh, heat pump. And I'll talk a little bit about that because it's a very interesting data point on that one. The hot water heater, an air exchange system, and the secret sauce component, right? And so, but I, I want to start with the heat pump itself. So uh, one, two, two or three data points, you, you say they're not very common yet. That's true in North America. You know, we have um, very common in uh, Japan for a couple of decades. And some of the biggest firms are now in, you know, building gigafactories in Texas for those heat pumps. And there, uh, there were 2.18 million units sold in Europe last year, for example, a 34% increase year over year. Mm -hmm. Unsurprising, given the you know, challenges and stuff. And now we're seeing significant European pushback, especially in the UK, weirdly, against heat pumps. Oh, they can't possibly work in my home. And we're seeing now cross-latitudinal studies of 700 different buildings in every category of UK building with heat pumps saying, yeah, it'll work just fine for this. You're, you're, you're lying through your teeth. And so there's one of the interesting things we'll get to is what are the pushback areas? And you alluded to some of them. But the second thing is the refrigerants themselves. Mm -hmm. so there's a really interesting thread here. So the Sandine uh, heat pump you use, what is the refrigerant? inside those compression coils it uses co2 as a refrigerant and in the climate world we're used to talking about co2 as the as the the the, the problem right uh, because co2 is what's causing climate change but co2 used as a refrigerant is actually a very very good thing there's something called a global warming potential which is the, the multiple, you know, how does it compare to CO2 in terms of its capacity to warm the planet? CO2, by definition, has a global warming potential of one. Now, the question is, how does that compare to others? Actually, I just want to put a little parenthesis around this. The refrigerant inside a heat pump is contained, right? It is used again and again. And potentially end of life or potentially if there's an accident, there may be leakage, but it typically stays inside the, the device. So let's not over-dramatize what, what, the, what the issue is here. Heat pumps are fantastic things and, and, and this is really contained. But when you think about the overall life cycle of the system and the, the risk of a potential leakage, CO2 as a refrigerant has a global warming potential of one. And some of the refrigerants that we're currently using today, which will progressively be rolled back over the coming years, 
have global warming potentials of thousands of times more. Uh, R410A, for example, has a global warming potential of around 2000 compared to CO2. So that's what's really nice about CO2 as a refrigerant. And yeah, I think that's one of the key, the key nice things that, that it has. The sand and heat pump is also very nice in that, that that refrigerant, the CO2, is contained in the heat pump. What goes into the home and out of the home is actually water. It's hot water going in, like cold water coming out. And so there are no refrigerant lines, which drives costs and other things going into the home. So that's another nice feature. But, but the refrigerant CO2 is just, just really great in terms of global warming impact. Yeah, so I, I spent a bunch of time looking at HVAC systems for residential, commercial, industrial spaces, and I did a um, projection in uh, for all the Canadian provinces of deployment of heat pumps. And I looked at all the factors. I, I looked at HFOs versus CO2s versus HFCs versus CFCs, which is a bunch of gobbledygook of different types of refrigerants. And one of the things I stumbled across, just for you to you know be aware of, is the industry rule of thumb is 3% refrigerant leakage per year from a system, right? So it's not very much. But when you've got, say, um, a kilogram of CO2 leaks, or kilogram of CO2 leaks, that's a kilogram of CO2. But if a kilogram of, you know, a standard HFC refrigerant leaks, oh, that might be 1.4 tons of CO2 equivalent. And so better maintained refrigeration systems still matter. But there's also some other interesting stuff there. There's this really interesting trend through time. And Jane, you're, you're like a CEO in this, but I'm, I'll start the journey and then we can explore it together. I, I go back to the hole in the ozone layer. And people are saying, why the hole in the ozone layer? Well, chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, are a refrigerant that was traditionally used because it was cheap and easy and as a refrigerant in air conditioners and refrigerators and all the things we've been talking about. And it has a really bad impact upon ozone. It combines badly and we have a whole new ozone layer and then Australians get sunburn and die. And I like Australians, so I prefer, like many people, for that not to happen. And there are other bad things there as well. Uh, and so we, you know, in the Montreal Protocol to control for substances that harm the ozone layer, signed between uh, Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan, you know, two conservative leaders in North America signing, you know, driving and signing an international treaty on environmentally harmful substances. I'd just like to point that out as a really positive thing that I'd like conservatives to get back to is, you know, that thing. Now that had a really weird effect. CFCs were bad for the ozone layer, but they had really high global warming potentials as well. And so the replacement was mostly HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, I believe it is. And so HFCs had a low global warming potential, but they had much lower impacts on ozone layer. So this is really great news. And I'm sure there was some nerdy person standing up and saying, but HFCs are still high GWP and they weren't listened to. So then we kind of fast forward to 2015 and the COP you know, comes through and we sign the uh, Paris Accord. And that's kind of the big news out of that thing. But seven months later, a bunch of people are in Kigali, Rwanda and they're signing the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol on substances that harm the ozone layer. They just don't know how to name things there. <laughs> just like too many words. But the Kigali Amendment in 2016 was the thing that said, we got to get rid of HFCs and replace them with low global warming potential refrigerants in stuff. And so you kind of like look at that and go, okay, cool. And then we fast forward to the past couple of years, China has ratified the Kigali Amendment 
And so has the United States, finally. Like three years ago, 65 nations globally had ratified it with notable exclusions of the two biggest economies in the world. Fast forward a couple of years, hey, we got like 137 uh, ratifiers or something like that, including China and the United States. It's a really good news story. And now we're kind of like looking at replacement for HFCs like HFOs, which have global warming potentials down about around eight in the best case scenario, but are somewhat technically unproven. And then this wonderful thing called CO2, which is this problem, but not a problem in the other. Now, I, I will tell a brief story. I was in my uh, local, one of my local grocery stores and the cheese refrigerator, like a massive thing, right? So like mm -hmm. it's a nice grocery store. It has really great cheese. It's a five-year-old cheddar from Agropur. Very nice. It was kind of a third full. All the cheese was pushed against the back. And there are a couple of guys in HVAC tech coveralls standing there. And I said, what's going on? I'm, I'm a curious guy. So I asked, oh, well, we're replacing the refrigerants. And I said, oh, really? What are you replacing them with? Well, CO2. Oh, really? That's interesting. So, so you're replacing the HFC-based refrigerants with CO2. Yeah, and we're kind of concerned. This is an interest, this is a long-winded way of saying there's an interesting point here. And the, the concern was that it was three times the pressure for CO2 refrigerants as the previous HFC refrigerants. They're worried about 150 atmospheres of pressure. And, and I reassured them that hydrogen fuel cell vehicles required 750 atmospheres of pressure. So the 150 paled by comparison. But, but that's kind of one of the things. It's there's some changes to the refrigerants that require higher pressures inside the system. And that could imply greater leakage. Uh, have you guys looked at that one? Uh, I mean, because I, I haven't looked at the Sandine technology, but I'm just curious about that. So, you know, we, we, we essentially are using the heat pump and we really are, you know, looking for the uh, the innovation in, in those those fields. And we're, we're lucky enough to be able to leverage it. But the Sanco 2 heat pump does store, does have a much higher pressure inside mm -hmm. that. And that makes it, I wouldn't say more, more leaky, I would say it just makes it a little bit more expensive to manufacture. It has to be manufactured mm. to resist higher pressure. Uh, it is, I'd say one of the beauties of it is because that that refrigerant is contained uniquely in the outdoor unit, it's got yep. much fewer points of vulnerability where it's, where it's moving from one location to the other. And so uh, I would say mm. that the, the leakage is actually lower than the average because you've got it self-contained but it's, yeah. it's it is it is a slightly more expensive heat bump because they have to manufacture to higher standards because of the higher pressure yeah i, I looked at um um so uh, we'll get into characterization of, of your specific solution and where it fits because i looked at the sandine co2 solution for a building similar to the one i'm in right now which has 300 condo units in a you know one of six buildings of similar size and or five buildings of similar size on the same block, I believe that's a different market than you're going after with the your your solution at this point in time. And so let's start to characterize. You know, I was just curious. I think the CO two story is a really interesting story for people thinking about heat pumps. Oh, we can actually use CO two as a solution. Tiny amounts of it, but it's a solution. But characterize now. We're getting to specifically harvest thermal. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. 
That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>